Hello, and welcome to Kraken's Cabin. How have you been, my friend? It was quite the storm last night. I can hear the birds singing outside. No doubt ecstatic about the twigs and the warm meal that the storms provided for them. It's been a cold winter so far, and I'm sure they're as keen as we are for the spring to arrive. I have an update for us on the telephone number we found last week. Well, I did get a confirmation that it has been discontinued, but the phone company are willing to help provide us with some details of a forwarding number and address, once all the necessary paperwork's been filed. I've referred this to the family lawyer and they've begun the process for us. It'll take a few weeks, but we're following the clues, right? While thinking about all of this pursuit, I remembered a story I read when I was much younger, about following clues to their natural conclusion, even when they don't make sense. Sometimes we find the sense further down the path. I was able to find it within the library, and I thought I'd share it with you this evening. So please take a moment, relax, and let me read to you. It's called The Red-Headed League by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. I had called upon my friend, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, one day in the autumn of last year and found him in deep conversation with a very stout, florid-faced, elderly gentleman with fiery red hair. With an apology for my intrusion, I was about to withdraw when Holmes pulled me abruptly into the room and closed the door behind. You could not possibly have come at a better time, my dear Watson, he said cordially. I was afraid that you were engaged. So I am. Very much so. Then I can wait in the next room. Not at all. This gentleman, Mr. Wilson, has been my partner and helper in many of my most successful cases. I have no doubt that he would be of the utmost use to me in years too. The stout gentleman half rose from his chair and gave a bob of greeting, with a quick little questioning glance from his small, fat encircled eyes. Try the city, said Holmes, relapsing into his armchair and putting his fingertips together as was his custom when in judicial moods. I know, my dear Watson, that you share my love of all that is bizarre and outside the conventions and humdrum routine of everyday life. You have shown your relish for it by the enthusiasm which has prompted you to chronicle, and if you'll excuse my saying so, somewhat to embellish so many of my own little adventures. Your cases have indeed been of the greatest interest to me, I observed. You'll remember that I remarked the other day just before we went into the very simple problem presented by Miss Mary Sutherland, that for strange effects and extraordinary combinations we must go to life itself, which is always far more daring than any effort of the imagination. A proposition which I took the liberty of doubting. You did, Doctor. But nonetheless, you must come round to my view, for otherwise I shall keep on piling fact upon fact on you, until your reason breaks down under them and acknowledges me to be right. Mr. Jabez Wilson here has been good enough to call upon me this morning and to begin a narrative which promises to be one of the most singular which I have listened to for well, quite some time. You've heard me remark that the strangest and most unique things are very often connected not with the larger, but with the smaller crimes. And occasionally, indeed, where there is room for doubt whether any positive crime has been committed. As far as I have heard it impossible for me to say whether there is the present case an instance of crime or not. The course of events is certainly among the most singular that I've ever listened to. Perhaps, Mr. Wilson, you would have the great kindness to recommence your narrative. As you not merely because my do friend Dr. Watson here has not heard the opening part, but also because the peculiar nature of the story makes me anxious to have every single possible detail from your lips. As a rule, when I have heard some slight indication of the course of events, I'm able to guide myself by the thousands of other similar cases which occur to my memory. In the present instance, I'm forced to admit that the facts are, to the best of my knowledge, unique. The poorly client puffed out his chest with an appearance of some little pride and pulled a dirty and wrinkled newspaper from the inside pocket of his greatcoat. As he glanced down the advertisement column, with his hand he thrust forward and the paper flattened out upon his knee. I took a good look at the man and endeavoured, after the fashion of my companion, to read the indications which might be presented by his dress or appearance. I did not gain very much, however, by my inspection. 
Our visitor bore every mark of being an average commonplace British tradesman. Obese, pompous and slow. He wore rather baggy grey shepherd check trousers, a not over-clean black frock coat, unbuttoned in the front, and a drab waistcoat with a heavy brassy albertine, and a square pierced bit of metal dangling down as an ornament. A frayed top hat and a faded brown overcoat with a wrinkled velvet collar lay upon a chair next to him. Altogether, look as I would, there was nothing remarkable about the man save his blazing red head and the expression of extreme chagrin and discontent upon his features. Sherlock Holmes' quick eye took in my occupation and shook his head with a smile as he noticed my questioning glances. Beyond the obvious facts that he has at some time done manual labour, that he takes snuff, and that he is a Freemason, that he has been to China, and that he has done a considerable amount of writing lately, I can deduce nothing else. Mr. Jabez Wilson started up in his chair, with a forefinger upon the paper, but his eyes upon my companion. How, in the name of good fortune, did you know all that, Mr. Holmes? He said. How did you know, for example, that I did manual labour? It's as true as gospel, for I began as a ship's carpenter, your hands, my dear sir. Your right hand is quite a size larger than your left. You've worked with it, and the muscles are far more developed. Well, the snuff, then, and the Freemasonry? I'll not insult your intelligence by telling you how I read that, especially as, rather against the strict rules of your order, use an arc and compass breastpin. Ah, of course, I forgot that. But the writing... What else can be indicated by the right cuff so very shiny for five inches, and the left one with the smooth patch near the elbow where you rested upon the desk? Well, but China? The fish that you have tattooed immediately above your right wrist could only have been done in China. I've made a small study of tattoo marks and even contributed to the literature on the subject. That trick of staining the fish's scales of a delicate pink is quite peculiar to China. When... In addition, I can see a Chinese coin hanging from your watch chain. The matter becomes even more simple. Mr. Jabez Wilson laughed heavily. Well, I never, <laughs> said he. I thought at first that you had done something clever, but I can see there is nothing in it at all. I begin to think, Watson, said Holmes, that I made a mistake in explaining. Omne ignotum pro magnifico. You know, and my poor little reputation, such as it is, will suffer a shipwreck if I am not so candid. Can you not find the advertisement, Mr. Wilson? Yes, yes, I've got it now, he answered, with his thick red finger planted halfway down the column. Here it is. This is what began it all. You can read it for yourself, sir. I took the paper from him and read as follows. To the red-headed lake. On account of the bequest of the late Ezekiel Hopkins of Lebanon, Pennsylvania, USA, there is another vacancy open which entitles a member of the League to a salary of four pounds a week for purely nominal services. All red-headed men, here in son, body and mind, and above the age of 21 years, are eligible. Apply in person on Monday at 11 o'clock to Duncan Ross at the offices of the League, 7 Pope's Court, Fleet Street. What on earth does this mean? I ejaculated, after I had twice read over the extraordinary announcement. Holmes chuckled and wriggled in his chair, as was his habit when in high spirits. It is a little off the beaten track, isn't it? said he. And now, Mr. Wilson, off you go at scratch and tell us all about yourself, your household, and the effect which this advertisement had upon your fortunes. We'll first make a note, Doctor, of the paper and the date. It is the Morning Chronicle of April 27, 1890, just two months ago. Very good. Now, Mr. Wilson? Well, it is just as I've been telling you, Mr. Sherlock Holmes, said Jabez Wilson, mopping his forehead. I have a small pawnbroker's business at Coburg Square, near the city. It's not a very large affair, and of late years it has not, not done more than just to give me a living. I used to be able to keep two assistants, but now I only keep one and I would have a job to pay him, but that he is willing to come for half the wages so as to learn the business. And what is the name of this obliging youth? asked Sherlock Holmes. His name is Vincent Spaulding, and he is not such a youth either. It's hard to say his age. 
We should not wish a smarter assistant, Mr. Holmes, and I know very well that he could better himself and earn twice what I'm able to give him. But, after all, if he's satisfied, why should I put ideas in his head? Why indeed? You seem much fortunate in having an employee who comes under the full market price. It's not a common experience among employers in his age. You do not know that your assistant is not as remarkable as your advertisement. Oh, he has his faults too, said Mr. Wilson. Never was such a fellow photography, snapping away with his camera when he ought to be improving his mind, and then diving down into the cellar like a rabbit into his hole to develop his pictures. That's his main fault. But on the whole, he's a good worker. There's no vice in him. He's still with you, I presume? Yes, sir. He and a girl of fourteen. He does a simple bit of cooking and keeps the place clean. It's all I have in the house, for I'm a widower and never had any family. We live very quietly, sir, the three of us. We keep a roof over our heads and pay our debts, if we do nothing more. The first thing that put us out was that advertisement, Spalding. He came down into the office just this day eight weeks, with this very paper in his hand, and he says, I wish to the Lord, Mr. Wilson, that I was a red-headed man. Why is that, I asked. Why, says he, there's another vacancy on the League of Redhead Men. It's worth quite a little fortune to any man who gets it, and I understand that there are more vacancies than there are men, so that the trustees are at their wits' end with what to do with money. If my hair would only change colour, here's a nice little crib all ready for me to step into. Why? What is it then? I asked. You see, Mr. Holmes, I'm a very stay-at-home man, and as my business came to me instead of my having to go to it, I was often weeks on end without putting my foot over the doormat. In that way, I didn't know much of what was going on outside, and I was glad of a little bit of news. Have you never heard of the League of Red-Headed Men? He asked, with his eyes open. Never. Why, I wonder at that, for you are eligible yourself for one of the vacancies. And what are they worth? I asked. Oh, merely a couple of hundred a year. But the work is slight, and it need not interfere very much with one's other occupations. Well, you can easily think that that made me prick up my ears, for the business has not been over good for some years, and an extra couple of hundred would have been very handy. Tell me about it, said I. Well, said he, show me the advertisement. You can see for yourself that the league has a vacancy and there is the address where you should apply for the particulars. As far as I can make out, the League was founded by an American millionaire, Ezekiel Hopkins, who was very peculiar in his ways. He was himself a redhead, and he had great sympathy for all red-headed men, so that when he died, it was found that he had left his enormous fortune in the hands of his trustees, with instructions to apply the interest to providing of easy births to men whose hair is that of that colour. For all I hear, there's splendid pay and very little to do. But, said I, must be millions of red-headed men who would apply. Not so many as you might think, he answered. You see, it is really confined to Londoners, and to grown men. This American had started from London when he was young, and he wanted to do the old town a good turn. Then, again, I've heard it is of no use when you're applying if your hair is light red, dark red, or anything but real bright, blazing, fiery red. Now, if you cared to apply, Mr. Wilson, you would just walk in. But perhaps it would be hardly worth your while to put yourself out of the way for the sake of a couple hundred pint. Now, it is a fact, gentlemen, and you may see for yourselves, that my hair is a very full and rich tint, so that it seemed to me that if there was any competition in the matter, I should have as good a chance as any man that I ever met. Vincent Spaulding seemed to know just so much about it that I thought he might prove useful, so I just ordered him to put up the shutters for the day and to come right away with me. He was very willing to have a holiday. So we shut the business up and started off for the address that was given in the advertisement. I never hoped to see such a sight as that again, Mr. Holmes. From north, south, east and west, every man who had a shade of red in his hair had tramped into the city to answer the advertisement. Fleet Street was choked with red-headed folk. The Pope's court looked more like a coster's orange barrow. I should have thought there were so many in the whole country as were brought together by that single advertisement. Every shade of colour they were. Straw, lemon, orange, brick, Irish setter, liver, clay. But as Spalding said, there were not so many who had the real vivid flame-coloured tint. What I saw how many were waiting, I would have given up in despair, but Spalding would not hear of it. 
how he did it, I could not imagine, but he pushed and pulled and butted until he got me through the crowd, right up to the steps which led to the office. There was a double stream upon the chair, some going up in hope, and some coming back dejected. But we wedged in as well as we could and soon found ourselves in the office. Your experience has been a most entertaining one, remarked Holmes, as his client paused and refreshed his memory with a huge pinch of snuff. Pray, continue your very interesting statement. There was nothing in the office but a couple of wooden chairs and a deal table, behind which sat a small man with a head that was even redder than mine. He said a few words to each candidate as he came up, and then he always managed to find some fault in them which would disqualify them. Getting a vacancy did not seem to be such a very easy matter after all. However, when our turn came, the little man was much more favourable to me than any of the others, and he closed the door as we entered so that he might have a private word with us. This is Mr. Jabez Wilson, said my assistant, and he's willing to fill the vacancy in the league. And he is admirably suited for it, the other answered. He has every requirement. I cannot recall what I have seen. Anything so fine. He took a step backward, cocked his head on one side and gazed at my hair until I felt quite bashful. Then suddenly he plunged forward, wrung my hand and congratulated me warmly on my success. It would be an injustice to hesitate, said he. You will, however, I am sure, excuse me for taking such an obvious precaution. With that, he seized my hair in both his hands and tugged until I yelled with the pain. There's water in your eyes, said he, as he released me. I perceived all as it should be. But we have to be careful, for you have twice been deceived by wigs and once by paint. I could tell you the tales of cobbler's wax which would disgust you with human nature. He stepped over to the window and shouted through it at the top of his voice that the vacancy was filled. A groan of disappointment came up from below and the folk all trooped away in different directions until there was not a red head to be seen except my own and that of the manager. My name, said he, is Mr. Duncan Ross, and I'm, I am myself one of the pensioners upon the fund left by our noble benefactor. Are you a married man, Mr. Wilson? Have you a family? I replied that I had not. His face fell immediately. Dear me, he said gravely, that is very serious indeed. I'm sorry to hear you say that. The fund was, of course, for the propagation and spread of all redheads, as well as for their maintenance. It's exceedingly unfortunate that you should be a bachelor. My face lengthened at this, Mr. Holmes, for I thought that I was not to have the vacancy at all. But after thinking over it for a few minutes, he said that it would be all right. In the case of another, said he, the objection might be fatal. But we must stretch a point in favour of a man with such a head of fire as yours. When shall you be able to enter your new duties? Well, it is a little awkward, for I have a business already, said I. Oh, never mind about that, Mr. Wilson, said Vincent Spaulding. I should be able to look after that for you. And when would be the hours? I asked. Ten to two. Now, a pawnbroker's business is mostly done of an evening, Mr. Holmes, especially Thursday and Friday evening, which is just a little before payday, so it would suit me very well to earn a little in the mornings. Besides, I knew that my assistant was a good man, and that he would see to everything that I turned up. That would suit me very well, said I. And the pay? Is four pounds a week. And the work? Purely nominal. And what do you mean by purely nominal? Well, you have to be in the office, or at least in the building, the whole time. If you leave, you forfeit your whole position forever. The will is very clear upon that point. If you don't comply with the conditions, if you budge from the office during that time. It's only four hours a day, and I should not think of leaving, said I. No excuse will avail, said Mr. Duncan Ross. Neither sickness, nor business, or anything else. There you must stay, or you lose your bill And the work? It's to copy out the Encyclopedia Britannica. There is the first volume of it in that press. You must find your own ink, pens, and blotting paper but we provide the table and chair. Will you be ready tomorrow? Certainly, I answered. Then goodbye, Mr. Jabez Wilson. And let me congratulate you once more on the important position which you've been fortunate enough to gain. He bowed me out of the room, and I went home with my assistant, hardly knowing what to say or to do. I was so pleased at my good fortune. Well, I thought over the matter all day, and by evening I was in low spirits again 
for I quite persuaded myself that the whole affair must be some great hoax or fraud, though what the object might be I could not imagine. It seemed altogether past belief that anyone could make such a will, or that they would pay such a sum for anything so simple as copying out the Encyclopedia Britannica. Vincent Spaulding did what he could to cheer me up, but by bedtime I had reasoned myself out of the whole thing. However, in the morning I determined to have a look at it anyhow. So I bought a penny bottle of ink, and with a quill pen and seven sheets of foolscap paper, I started off for Pope's Court. Well, to my surprise and delight, everything was as right as possible. The table was set out ready for me. Mr. Duncan Ross was there to see that I got fairly to work. He started me off upon the letter A, and then he left me, but he would drop in from time to time to see that all was right with me. At two o'clock he bade me good day, complimented me upon the amount that I'd written, and locked the door of the office after me. This went on day after day, Mr. Holmes, and on Saturday the manager came in and planked down four golden sovereigns for my week's work. It was the same night the next week, the same the week after. Every morning I was there at ten, every afternoon I left at two. By degrees, Mr. Duncan Ross took to coming in only once a morning, and then after time he did not come in at all. Still, of course, I never dared to leave the room for an instant, for I was not sure that he might come, and the billet was such a good one, and suited me so well, that I would not risk the loss of it. Eight weeks passed like this, and I'd written about abbots and archery, armour and architecture and Attica, and hoped with diligence that I might get on to the bees before very long. It cost me something in fool's cap, and I've pretty nearly filled a shelf with my writings. And then suddenly the whole business came to an end. To an end? Yes, sir. And no later than this morning. I went to my work as usual at ten o'clock, but the door was shut and locked, with a little square of cardboard hammered onto the middle of the panel with a tack. Here it is, and you can read it for yourself. He held up a piece of white cardboard about the size of a sheet of notepaper, and it read in this fashion. The Red-Headed League is dissolved. October 9th, 1890. Sherlock Holmes and I surveyed this curt announcement and the rueful face behind it, until the comical side of the affair so completely overtopped every other consideration that we both burst out into a roar of laughter. I can't see that there's anything very funny, cried our client, flushing up to the roots of his flaming head. If you can do nothing better than laugh at me, I can go elsewhere. No, no, cried Dr. Holmes, shoving him back into the chair with which he'd half risen. I really wouldn't miss your case for the world. It's just most refreshingly unusual. But there is, if you will excuse my saying so, something just a little funny about it. Pray, what steps did you take when you found the card upon the door? I was staggered, sir, and did not know what to do. And then I called at the offices round, but none of them seemed to know anything about it. Finally, I went to the landlord, who's an accountant living on the ground floor, and I asked him if he could tell me what had become of the red-headed leak. He said that he'd never heard of any such body. Then I asked him who Mr. Duncan Ross was, and he answered that the name was new to him. Well, said I, the gentleman at number four. What, the red-headed man? Yes. Oh, said he. His name was William Morris. He was a solicitor and was using my room as a temporary convenience until his new premises were ready. He moved out yesterday. Where could I find him? Oh, at his new offices. He did tell me the address. Uh, let's see here. Yes, 17 King Edward Street, near St. Paul's. I started off, Mr. Holmes, but when I got to that address, it was a manufactory of artificial kneecaps, and no one in it had ever heard of either Mr. William Morris or Mr. Duncan Ross. What did you do then? asked Holmes. Well, I went home, and I took the advice of my assistant, but he couldn't help me in any way. He could only say that if I waited, I should hear by post. But that was not quite good enough, Mr. Holmes. I do not wish to lose such a place without a struggle, so I heard that if you were good enough to give your advice to poor folk who were in need of it, I came right away to you. And you did very wisely, said Holmes. Your case is an exceedingly remarkable one and shall be happy to look into it. From what you've told me, I think that it is possible that the graver issues hang from it that might at first sight appear. Grave enough, said Mr. Jabez Wilson. Why, I've lost four pound a week. As far as you're personally concerned, remarked Holmes, I do not see that you've any grieve against this extraordinary league. On the contrary, 
You are, as I understand, richer by some thirty pounds. They say nothing of the minute knowledge which would have been gained on the very subject which comes under the letter A. You've lost nothing by them. No, sir. But I want to find out about them, and who they are, and what their object was in this playing this prank. If it was a prank, upon me. It's a pretty expensive joke for them, for it cost them two and thirty pounds. We shall endeavour to clear up these points for you. And, first, one or two questions, Mr. Wilson. This assistant of yours who's first called your attention to the advertisement, how long has he been with you? About a month. And how did he come? In answer to an advertisement. Was he the only applicant? No, I had a dozen. And why did you pick him? Because he was handy and would come cheap. At half wages, in fact. Yes. And what is he like, this Vincent Spaulding? Small, stud-built, very quick in his ways. No hair on his face, though he's not short of thirty. Has a white splash of acid upon his forehead. Holmes sat up in his chair in considerable excitement. I thought as much, said he. Have you ever observed that his ears are pierced for earrings? Yes, sir. He told me that a gypsy had done it for him when he was a lad. Huh, said Holmes, sinking back in deep thought. And he's still with you? Oh, yes, sir. I've only just left him. When has your business been attended to in your absence? Nothing to complain of, sir. It's never very much to do in the morning. That'll do, Mr. Wilson. I shall be happy to give you an opinion upon the subject in the course of a day or two. Today is Saturday, and I hope that by Monday we may come to the conclusion. Well, Watson, said Holmes, when our visitor had left us. What do you think of it all? I make nothing of it, I answered frankly. It's a most mysterious business. As a rule, said Holmes, the more bizarre a thing is, the less mysterious it proves to be. It's your commonplace, featureless crimes which are really puzzling. Just as commonplace face is the most difficult to identify. But I must be prompt over this matter. What are you going to do then? I asked. To smoke, he answered. It's quite a three-pipe problem, and I beg that you won't speak to me for fifty minutes. He curled himself up in his chair, with his thin knees drawn up to his hawk-like nose, and there he sat with his eyes closed and his black clay pipe thrusting out like the bill of some strange bird. I've come to the conclusion that he dropped asleep, and indeed was nodding myself, when he suddenly sprang out of his chair with the gesture of a man who had made up his mind and put his pipe down upon the mantelpiece. Sarasi it plays at St. James's Hall this afternoon, he remarked. What do you think, Watson? Could your patience spare you for a few hours? I have nothing to do today. My practice is never very absorbing. Then, put on your hat and come. I'm going through the city first, and we can have some lunch on the way. I observe that there's a good deal of German music on the programme, which is rather more to my taste than Italian or the French. It's introspective, and I want to introspect. Come along. We travelled by the underground as far as Aldersgate, and a short walk took us to Saxe-Coburg Square, the scene of the singular story which we had listened to in the morning. It was a poky, little, shabby, genteel place, where four lines of dingy, two-storied brick houses looked out into a small, railed-in enclosure, where a lawn of weedy grass and a few clumps of faded laurel bushes made a hard fight against the smoke-laden and uncongenial atmosphere. Three gilt balls and a brown board with Jabez Wilson in white letters upon a corner house announced the place where a red-headed client carried on his business. Sherlock Holmes stopped in front of it with his head on one side and looked it all over, with his eyes shining brightly between his puckered lids. Then he walked slowly up the street and then down again to the corner, still looking keenly at the houses. Finally, he returned to the pawnbroker's, and having thumped vigorously upon the pavement with his stick two or three times, he went up to the door and knocked. It was instantly opened by a bright-looking, clean-shaven young fellow, who asked him to step in. Thank you, said Holmes. I only wish to ask you how you would go from here to the Strand. Third right, fourth left, answered the assistant promptly, closing the door. Smart fellow, that, observed Holmes as he walked away. He is, in my judgment, the fourth smartest man in London. If for Darien, I'm not sure that he has a claim to be third. I've known something of him before. Evidently, said I. Mr. Wilson's assistant counts for a good deal in this mystery of the red-headed league. 
I'm sure that you're inquired your way merely in order that you might see him. Not him. What then? The knees of his treasures. And what did you see? What I expected to see. And why did you beat the pavement? My dear doctor, this is a time for observation, not for talk. We are spies in an enemy's country. We know something of Saxe-Coburg Square. Let us now explore the parts which lie behind it. The road in which we found ourselves as we turned round the corner from the retired Saxe-Coburg Square presented as great a contrast to it as the front of the picture does to the back. It was one of the main arteries which conveyed the traffic of the city to the north and the west. The roadway was blocked with the immense stream of commerce flowing in a double tide inward and outward while the footpaths were black with the hurrying swarm of pedestrians. It was difficult to realise as we looked at the line of fine shops and stately business premises that they really abutted on either side upon the faded and stagnant square which we had just quitted. Let me see, said Holmes, standing at the corner and glancing along the line. I should like just to remember the order of houses here. It's a hobby of mine, to have an exact knowledge of London. There is Mortimer's, the tobaccoist, the little newspaper shop, the Coburg branch of City and Suburban Bank, the vegetarian restaurant, McFarlane's carriage building depot, and that carries us right onto the other block. And now, Doctor, we've done our work, so it's time we've had some play. A sandwich and a cup of coffee, and then off the violin land, where all this sweetness and delicacy and harmony, and there are no red-headed clients to vex us with their conundrums. My friend was an enthusiastic musician, being himself not only a very capable performer, but a composer of no ordinary merit. All the afternoon he sat in the stalls wrapped in the most perfect happiness, gently waving his long, thin fingers in time to the music, while his gently smiling face and his languid, dreamy eyes were as unlike those of Holmes the sleuth-hound, Holmes the relentless and keen-witted, ready-handed criminal agent, as it was possible to conceive. In a singular character, the dual nature alternately asserted itself, and his extreme exactness and his astuteness represented, as I was often thought, the reaction against the poetic and the contemplative mood which occasionally predominated in him. The swing of his nature took him from extreme languor to devouring energy, and as I knew well, he was never so truly formidable as when, for days on end, he had been lounging in his armchair amid his improvisations and his black-letter editions. Then it was the lust of the chase which would suddenly come upon him, and that his brilliant reasoning power would rise to the level of intuition, until those who were unacquainted with his methods would look a chance at him, as a man whose knowledge was not that of other mortals. What I saw him that afternoon, so enwrapped in the music at St. James's Hall, I felt that an evil time might be coming upon those with whom he'd set himself to hunt down. You want to go home, no doubt, Doctor, he remarked as we emerged. Yes. It would be as well. And I have some business to do, which will take some hours. This business at Coburg Square is serious. Why serious? A considerable crime is in contemplation. I have every reason to believe that we shall be in time to stop it. But today, being Saturday, rather complicates matters. I shall want your help tonight. At what time? Ten will be early enough. I shall be at Baker Street at ten. Very well. And I say, Doctor, there may be some little danger, so kindly put your army revolver in your pocket. He waved his hand, turned on his heel, and disappeared in an instant among the crowd. I trust that I am not more dense than my neighbours. But I was always oppressed with my sense of my own stupidity in my dealings with Sherlock Holmes. Here, I had heard what he had heard. I had seen what he had seen. And yet from his words it was evidence that he saw clearly not only what had happened, but what was about to happen while to me the whole business was still confused and grotesque. As I drove home to my house in Kensington, I thought over it all. From the extraordinary story of the red-headed copier in the encyclopedia, down to the visit at the Saxe Coburg Square, the ominous words with which he'd parted from me. What was this nocturnal expedition? Why should I go armed? Where were we going? What were we to do? I had the hint from Holmes that the smooth-faced pawnbroker's assistant was a formidable man, a man who might play a deep game. I tried to puzzle it out, but gave up in despair and set the matter aside until night should bring an explanation. 
It was quarter past nine when I started from home and made my way across the park. So through Oxford Street to Baker Street. Two handsmen were standing at the door, and as I entered the passage I heard the sound of voices from above. On entering this room I found Holmes in animated conversation with two men, one of whom I recognised as Peter Jones, the official police agent, while the other was a long, thin, sad-faced man, with a very shiny hat and an oppressively respectable frock coat. Ha, our party is complete, said Holmes, buttoning up his pea jacket and taking his heavy hunting crop from the rack. Watson, I think you know Mr. Jones of Scotland Yard. Let me introduce you to Mr. Merriweather, who is to be our companion in tonight's adventure. We're hunting in couples again, Doctor, you see, said Jones in his consequential way. Our friend here is a wonderful man for starting the chase. All he wants is an old dog to help him do the running down. I hope a wild goose may not prove to be the end of our chase, observed Mr. Merriweather gloomily. You might place considerable confidence in Mr. Holmes, sir, said the police agent loftily. He has his own little methods, which are, if you don't mind me saying so, just a little too theoretical and fantastic. But he has the makings of a detective in him. It's not too much to say that once or twice, as in that business of the Shaloto murder and the Agra treasure, he has been more nearly correct than the official force. Oh, if you say so, Mr. Jones, it's all right, said the stranger with deference. Still, I confess that I miss my rubber. It's not the first Saturday night for seven and twenty years that I've not had my rubber. I think you will find, said Sherlock Holmes, that you will pay a higher stake tonight than you've ever done yet, and the play will be more exciting. For you, Mr. Merriweather, the stake will be some thirty thousand pounds, and for you, Jones, it will be the man upon whom you wish to lay your hands. John Clay, the murderer, thief, smasher, and forger, He's a young man, Mr. Merriweather, but he's at the head of his profession, and I would rather have my bracelets on him than on any criminal in London. He's a remarkable man, is young John Clay. His grandfather was a royal duke, and he himself has been to Eton and Oxford. His brain is as cunning as his fingers, and though we meet signs of him at every turn, we never know where to find the man himself. He'll crack a crib in Scotland one week, and then be raising money to build an orphanage in Cornwall the next. I've been on this track for years and have never set eyes upon him yet. Well, I hope that I may have the pleasure of introducing you tonight. I've had one or two little turns also with Mr. John Clay, and I agree with you that he is at the head of his profession. It is past ten, however, and quite the time we started. If you two will take the first hansom, Watson and I will follow in the second. Sherlock Holmes was not very communicative during the long drive and lay back in the cab humming the tunes with which he'd heard in the afternoon. We rattled through an endless labyrinth of gaslit streets until we emerged into Farrington Street. We're close there now, my friend remarked. This fellow Merriweather is a bank director, and personally interested in the matter. I thought it as well to have Jones with us too. He's not a bad fellow, though an absolute imbecile in his profession. He does have one positive virtue though. He's as brave as a bulldog and as tenacious as a lobster if he ever gets his claws upon anyone. Here we are, and there they are, waiting for us. We had reached the same crowded thoroughfare in which we had found ourselves in the morning. Our cabs were dismissed, and following the guidance of Mr. Merriweather, we passed down a narrow passage and through a side door with which he opened for us. Within, there was a small corridor, which ended in a very massive iron gate. This also was opened, and led down a flight of winding stone steps, which terminated another formidable gate. Mr. Merriweather stopped the lighted lantern, and then conducted us down a dark, earth-smelling passage. And so, after opening a third door, into a huge vault or cellar, which was piled all around with crates and massive boxes. You're not very vulnerable from above, Holmes remarked, as he held up the lantern and gazed about him. Nor from below said Mr. Merriweather, striking his stick upon the flags which lined the floor. Why, dear me, it sounds quite hollow, he remarked, looking up in surprise. I must really ask you to be a little more quiet, said Holmes severely. You have already imperiled the whole success of our expedition. Might I beg that you might have the goodness to sit yourself down upon those boxes and not to interfere? The solemn Mr. Merriweather perched himself upon the crate 
with a very injured expression upon his face, while Holmes fell upon his knees upon the floor, and with a lantern and magnifying glance, began to examine minutely the cracks between the stones. A few seconds seemed to satisfy him, for he sprang to his feet again and put his glass into his pocket. We have at least an hour before us, he remarked, for they can hardly take any steps until the good pawnbroker is safely in their bed. Then they'll not lose a minute, for the sooner they do their work, the longer time they'll have to find their escape. We are present, Doctor, as you've no doubt divined, in the cellar of the city branch, one of those principal London mites. Mr. Merriweather is the chairman of the directors, and he explained to you that there are reasons why there are more daring criminals of London should take a considerable interest in this cellar at present. It's our French gold, whispered the director. We had several warnings that an intent might be made upon it. Your French gold? Yes. We had occasion some months ago to strengthen our resources and borrowed from that purpose 30,000 Napoleons from the Bank of France. It's been known that we've never had occasion to unpack the money and that it is still lying in our cellar. The crate upon which I sit contains 2,000 Napoleons packed between layers of lead foil. Our reserve of bullion is much larger at present than is usually kept in a single branch office, and the directors have had misgivings upon the subject. Which you are very well justified, observed Holmes. And now it's time that we arrange our little plans. I expect that within an hour matters will come to a head. In the meantime, Mr. Merriweather, we must put a screen over that dark lantern. And sit in the dark? I'm afraid so. I'd brought a pack of cards in my pocket. I'd thought that... As we are a party carry, you might have had your rubber after all. But I can see the enemy's preparations have gone so far that we cannot risk the presence of the light. And first of all, we must choose our positions. These are daring men, and though we shall have them at a disadvantage, they may do us some harm unless we are careful. I shall stand behind this crate. Do you conceal yourself, then, behind those? Then, when I have a flash of light upon them, close in swiftly. If they fire Watson, have no compunction about shooting them down. I placed my revolver, cocked, upon the top of a wooden case behind where I was crouched. Holmes shot the slide across the front of his lantern and left us in pitch darkness. Such an absolute darkness as I've never before experienced. The smell of hot metal remained to assure us that the light was still there, ready to flash out upon a moment's notice. To me, with my nerves worked up to a pitch of expectancy, there was something depressing and subduing in the sudden gloom, in the cold, dank air of the vault. They have but one retreat, whispered Holmes, and that is back through the house into the Saxe-Coburg Square. I hope that you have done what I've asked you, Jones. I have an inspector and two officers waiting at the front door. And then we've stopped all the holes. And now we must be silent and wait. What a time it seemed. From comparing notes afterwards, it had been but an hour and quarter. Yet it appeared to me that night must have almost gone and the dawn must be breaking above us. My limbs were weary and stiff, for I feared to change my position. Yet my nerves were worked up to the highest pitch of tension, and my hearing was so acute that I could only hear the gentle breathing of my companions. But I could distinguish the deeper, heavier in-breath of the bulky Jones from the thin, sighing note of the bank director. From my position, I could look over the case in the direction of the floor. And suddenly, my eyes caught the glint of a light. At first, it was but the lurid spark upon the stone pavement. Then it lengthened out until it last became a yellow line. And then, without any warning or sound, a gash seemed to open and a hand appeared. A white, almost womanly hand, which felt about in the centre of the little area of light. For a minute or more, the hand, with its writhing fingers, protruded out of the floor. Then it was withdrawn as suddenly as it appeared, and all was dark again, save the single lurid spark which marked a chink between the stones. Its disappearance, however, was but momentary. With a rending, towering sound, one of the broad white stones turned over upon its side and left a square, gaping hole, through which streamed the light of a lantern. Over the edge there peeped a clean-cut, boyish face, which looked keenly upon it, and then, with a hand on either side of the aperture, drew itself shoulder-high and waist-high, until one knee rested upon the edge. In another instant, he stood at the side of the hole and was hauling after a companion, 
lithe and small like himself, with a pale face and a shock of very red hair. It's all clear, he whispered. Have you the Jezal on bags? Great, Scott. Jump, Archie, jump. I'll swing for it. Sherlock Holmes had sprung out and seized the intruder by the collar. The other dived down the hole, and I heard the sound of rending cloth as Jones clutched at his skirts. The light flashed upon the barrel of a revolver, but Holmes' hunting crop came down upon the man's wrist, and the pistol clinked upon the stone floor. It's no use, John Clay, said Holmes blandly. You've no choice at all. So I see, the other answered with the utmost coolness. I fancy that my pal is all right, though. I can see you've got his coattails. There are three men waiting for him at the door, said Holmes. Oh, indeed. You seem to have done the thing very completely. I must compliment you. And I you, Holmes answered. Your red-headed idea was very new and effective. You'll see your pal again, said Jones. He's quicker at climbing down the holes than I am. Just hold out while I fix the debris. I beg that you will not touch me with your filthy hands, remarked our prisoner, as the handcuffs clattered upon his wrists. You may not be aware that I have royal blood in my veins. Have the goodness, also, when you address me always to say sir and please. All right, said Jones with a stir. Well, would you please, sir, march upstairs, where we can get into a cab to carry your highness to the police station? That is better, said John Clay serenely. He made a sweeping bow to the three of us and walked quietly off into the custody of the detective. Really, Mr. Holmes, said Mr. Merriweather as we followed them from the cellar. I do not know how the bank can thank you or repay you. There is no doubt that you have detected and defeated in one complete manner one of the most determined attempts of bank robbery that you have ever come with in my experience. I have had one or two little scores of my own to sell with Mr. John Clay, said Holmes. I've been at some small expense over this matter, which I shall expect the bank to refund. But beyond that, I am amply repaid by having an experience which is in many ways unique, and by hearing the very remarkable narrative of the red-headed league. You see, Watson, he explained in the early hours of the morning as we sat over a glass of whiskey and soda in Baker Street. It was perfectly obvious from the first that the only possible object of this rather fantastic business of the advertisement of the league and the copying of the encyclopedia, must be to get this not overbright pawnbroker out of the way for a number of hours every day. It was a curious way of managing it, but, really, it would be difficult to suggest it better. The method was no doubt suggested to Clay's ingenious mind by the colour of his accomplice's hair. The four pounds a week was a lure which must draw him, and what was it to them who were playing for thousands? They put it in the advertisement, one rogue has the temporary office, the other rogue incites the main man to apply for it, and together they manage to secure his absence every morning in the week. From the time that I heard of the assistant having come for the half wages, it was obvious to me that he had some strong motive for securing the situation. But how could you guess what the motive was? Had there been women in the house, I should have suspected a mere vulgar intrigue. That, however, was out of the question. The man's business was a small one and there was nothing in the house which could account for an elaborate preparation and such an expenditure as they were at. It must, then, be something out of the house. What could it be? I thought of the assistant's fondness for photography and his trick of vanishing into the cellar. It was the cellar. That was the end of this tangled clue. Then I made inquiries as to the mysterious assistant and found that I had to deal with one of the coolest and most daring criminals in London. He was doing something in that cellar, something which took many hours a day for months on end. What could it be, once more? I could think of nothing save that he was running a tunnel to some other building. So far, I'd got when we went to visit the scene of the action. I surprised you by beating upon the pavement with my stick. I was ascertaining whether or not the cellar stretched out the front or behind. It was not in front. Then I rang the bell. And, as I hoped, the assistant answered it. We have had some skirmishes, but we have never set eyes upon each other before. I hardly looked at his face. His knees were what I wished to see. You must yourself have remarked how worn, wrinkled and stained they were. They spoke of those hours of burrowing. The only remaining point was that they were burrowing for. I walked round the corner and saw the city and suburban bank abutted on our friend's premises. I felt that I had solved my problem. 
When he drove home after the concert, I called upon Scotland Yard and upon the chairman of the bank directors, with the result that you've seen. And how could you tell that they would make their attempt tonight? Well, when they closed their league offices, that was a sign that they cared no longer about Mr. Jabez Wilson's presence. In other words, they'd completed their tunnel. But it was essential that they should use it soon, as it might be discovered, or the other bullion might be removed. Saturday would suit them better as any other day, as it would give them two days for their escape. And for all these reasons, I expected them to come tonight. You reasoned that I beautifully exclaimed, in unfeigned admiration. It is so long a chain, and yet every link rings true. It saved me for ennui, he answered, yawning. Alas, I already feel it closing upon me. My life is spent in one long effort to escape from the commonplaces of existence, and these little problems help me to do so. And you are a benefactor of the race, said I. He shrugged his shoulders. Well, perhaps, after all, it is of some little use, he remarked. La homme c'est rien, l'ouvre c'est tout, as Gustave Flaubert wrote to George Sand. Curious tale. I've always enjoyed Sherlock Holmes' stories. I don't know French well, but let me see if I can... The man is nothing, the work is everything. Interesting. Sherlock Holmes is saying that he doesn't want attention, he just simply wants to solve the problem. <laughs> I have a good feeling about this path we follow, my friend. Now we'll be able to find some answers soon. My only worry is that they'll continue to leave us with just as many questions when they're gone. Not all of this can be Sherlock Holmes, I suppose. Anyway, I must wish you good night. It's time for me to sleep. I hope you sleep well too. When you get there, you deserve that. <laughs>